we thought we would uh, begin with a few minutes of silence again sitting so you can find your sitting seat and sitting posture Again, just uh, invite your attention to be mindful of this moment, this place, this beautiful day, uh, with a spirit of gratitude. One thing I wanted to mention, uh, in response to a couple of uh, questions that have come up, is that uh, to say Buddhist pastoral counselor is a bit of a misnomer. There may be misunderstanding, or just to say a Christian pastoral counselor, because in the role of uh, being a pastoral counselor, you, as, as pastoral counselor, need to be willing to set aside whatever it is that is your particular belief, your particular paradigm of meaning, and respect the paradigm of meaning, the context, and the spiritual tradition of the person in front of you. And so actually, uh, it is different, quite different from a teaching role in that regard. You're not promoting or teaching any particular, uh, say, religious tradition when you're in the role of pastoral counselor. You're respecting uh, what the person in front of you is bringing forth and what they're working with and what is their particular uh, preference and uh, what they're comfortable with and what, uh, what language they'd like to use. So you may be an agnostic personal counselor, uh, pastoral counselor working with uh, a theistic uh, counselee. And if you feel that you can't actually work with that language of that person, then it would be ethically appropriate for you to refer them to someone else who can. Um, so to say, you know, we've talked about what is Buddhist pastoral counseling. And so I think pastoral counseling is pastoral counseling. And uh, then the question of what is Buddhist pastoral counseling would be that the, the person would acknowledge and own the fact that, uh, as I do, that I come uh, from a Buddhist perspective. 
And I do bring that, and so there are those resources that are available, but those are in the background. Um, yeah? If you are counseling, if you're serving as a Buddhist pastoral counselor to someone who's within your own Buddhist tradition, wouldn't that be somewhat different? Yeah, it would be. Uh, and, and different in what way are I mean, you saying? If you are working within your own sangha, yeah. then it seems that there's more of a mix between the teaching role and the pastoral counselor role. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And that would be, I'd say, at the request of the person. Well, you know, the person may come with a particular uh, interest and say, what? What is, uh, say someone comes to me and they're having, as people have, come to me with an issue about uh, some ethical questions following this, the settlement of the estate in their, when their mother died. Okay. And they may want to also work with some of the grief they feel and the loss they feel, and, but also want to know what, is, uh, what would be a Buddhist perspective on handling these ethical questions. And they really want to know that. So if they ask that, then of course, then that's a resource that I could that I could offer. Yeah. Like and you want to add something? Yeah. yeah. Um, in supervision, when you're learning how to be a pastoral counselor, we work with people to help them learn to not ever teach. It's not a teaching role. So if you find it's irresistible, and we we want to do it, but we really try to not be teachers. Very interesting. I'd like to say one thing about that, too, which is that um, I think it's important not to assume that if you're from the same Sangha, you have the same belief. There's many, many differences in our each each individual response to the tradition or whatever we're from. So I I just think that's that's also That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. So I see a number of hands. And... uh, um, I'm, before before we, we get into a whole group discussion here, I'd like to propose that we that we uh, take our questions into smaller groups for a while. Um, as it as always happens with a big group, there are some people who are much more comfortable speaking than others, and also there's only so much time for everyone to express themselves. So, in the interest of having a little more interactive time. Uh, the three of us talked during the break about uh, uh, leading three different groups, and we let go of our attachment to the idea of uh, who gets the most people in, in their group. Um, and we, thought, we thought of having equal groups and having everyone count off, but we suspected that there's maybe a little difference in uh, the kind of interest. So there may be several interest groups here. And what we thought would be, uh, that would make sense, would be for uh, Jaku to lead uh, one group that's particularly interested in the distinctions between, she's so uh, eloquent in identifying the distinctions between being a priest, being a teacher, being a pastoral, uh, pastoral counselor, psychotherapist, and, or a chaplain, and that whole range. Um, there are some people who are really interested and understanding those distinctions and exploring, and exploring those, um, and uh, 
Gail would, would lead a group that particularly uh, people who are interested in the training of pastoral counselors. You may be interested in training yourself as a pastoral counselor and also the, the resources that come from the uh, pastoral counseling tradition uh, uh, in the West and from the uh, Christian uh, resources and also from the American Association of Pastoral Counselors. And uh, so there's, there's that. And then I thought uh, that I would lead a group uh, with whatever's left. <laughs> but particularly, I'm interested in the question of, say, uh, uh, spiritual or Dharma depth. Uh, looking at uh, deepening one's uh, experience and understanding of spirituality, uh, of Dharma, uh, both in the role of uh, being a Dharma teacher and in the role of being a pastoral counselor. So how you might handle handle that. So uh, does that make sense to people? I see some people. What? Gail, could you clarify your... <laughs> What we also said is um, we're going to make these grand statements about what the group's going to be about, and it's going to be about it's going to be about whatever we decide to talk about. So, but but the category that we decided on for me would be pastoral counseling, the training to become a pastoral counselor, um, the program specifically, and what pastoral counseling is. Uh, you know more about what pastoral counseling is. From the, from the tradition out of which I come in the training. That's clear enough. Okay. So uh, we'll do that then. And we'll, we'll, uh, I'll ask uh, Jaku to step over there and Gail to step over there. And uh, people go to wherever you want to go. And we'll plan on uh, doing that for about an hour, and then we'll come back here. Yes? No, no. No, let's, let's just uh, settle in, and actually, you can actually bond as a group for an hour. <laughs> well, I don't know. I don't know uh, how it is for everyone else. I'm having a good time. And I'm... And I'm uh, I'm curious as to you know what was happening in the other groups. I noticed though that yeah, we were in that room, and then after I said made the the uh, heretical statement that uh, the devil we were talking about someone who had a conception of a devil. Um, I said, well, the devil is Buddha nature. And then someone over here came and closed the... Uh, the <laughs> no relationship. <laughs> it was the last yeah. yeah. We just became too noisy. That was it. Huh? Uh, it was uh, the devil made you do it. devil made me do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'd like to just uh, leave it open here for a little while, uh, just uh, for any uh, people... Uh, from, uh, we're not going to report from the different groups, but uh, anything that uh, someone would like to contribute. And uh, for the, actually, for the rest of our time, if there are questions that remain, 
that you could direct to either of us, um, we'll, we would be happy to uh, respond. But I'd also like to just keep it pretty loose and let, uh, let anyone in the room, because there's so much wisdom uh, located in uh, each person here. I just uh, turned the page. These were some of the focus questions that were on the, the flyer that announced this event. And uh, I think we've addressed uh, some of them, at least, uh, at least in part. I would say all of them, at least in part. Yes. I'm uh, drawing on some of uh, our discussion here at the Buddhist Chaplaincy Program through the Sati Center about the future of uh, pastoral care in our sanghas. And I would be curious to know if anyone besides priests and teachers is uh, finding ways to offer that to their sangha. I, I, I see a lot of resistance in my own community that that has to be the function of a teacher. But I notice that as a chaplain, I'm doing some things that could be called pastoral care that might be useful in a sangha, but I'm not sure that it would be acceptable. That's a good point. Would Would you like to respond to that? You're, you're over here saying, mm, mm-hmm. Um, here, I'll pass, pass this to you. Yeah, well, this is a complicated, a complicated issue, which says nothing. Um, I think part of this has to do with the maturing of sanghas, the maturing as we learn what leadership is in a sangha and how different people have leadership and what does it mean to have a teacher and what does it mean. Um, genuine lay leadership, what does that mean? All of that is is like cooking right now, as far as I'm concerned, in many, many different ways in so in, in North American Buddhism, anyway, if not South American and European Buddhism, that I don't I'm not so familiar with. But I think that's kind of the root thing. Can we really uh, welcome and honor the wisdom of each person in the Sangha and receive the gifts of that uh, without needing to demarcate exactly who it comes from and also not dilute the leadership. And that's my answer. It's It's a painful and difficult process that I think a lot of people are going through is how how does leadership really happen? How does it shift? What is what is the nature of it? You know, what is service? Because, in fact, um, this kind of mutual support happens all the time, you know, in many different traditions. To visit the sick is a mitzvah, you know. It's, to, it's, a, it's a blessing to do that in the Jewish tradition. You know, it's like if you're um, 
you know, one of the dedicated Mormon women I used to work with. It was like a part of her life to visit the sick. So there's a way in which it just happens. So I also think it has to do with women's work and valuing women's traditional women's work and seeing it as 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 fully um, wiseful as other forms of teaching. So. Mm. Not, that's not all. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested if there's uh, someone who is fulfilling that capacity now in this in this room, as uh, someone who's not recognized as a teacher, but who is actually, uh, say, ministering to your own sangha as, uh, say, a chaplain. Yes. I, I can do that. Could could you speak to that a little bit from your perspective? <laughs> to a little more fully, uh, a little more full degree. Well, I think it's very much what um, you were saying—that it's just sort of the natural response that arises when you're um, in a situation of, of closeness, or where you see, you know, somebody who needs something to um, respond and um, we have a group we've been sitting together for about seven or eight years and uh, we've had people go through many different things and we you know help each other out I've married a few people we've um, we've held uh, memorial services and it just is something that has arose very organically from being together and um, in consultation it's like if we have a question about how to do something kind of you know talking with one of our teachers or spiritual advisors but just the the group has always met as a circle so there's a sense of collective wisdom and and things just sort of arising out of the field of wisdom. So there's not a sense of there being some person who's the designated, authorized, spiritual person who's the one that should be doing this or that, but that it's really uh, wisdom that comes out of the group itself. How large There's about... 12 to 15 people and um, you know it, it, we've had many people come and leave and move and some people die and get too old to really be able to come but it's there's always kind of been a core of 12 13 14 something like that I have no idea <laughs> um, I I don't know I, I mean, I I don't see that the way we function in terms of the structure of sharing will change. Um, but I have no idea. <laughs> Would anyone else like to speak to that that question? Tova, you have your hand. I'm a member of a synagogue in San Francisco, and. Um, we have a committee called the Bikor Cholim. It's what you're 
picking up on what you were saying, Jaku, that um, it's considered a blessing or a mitzvah to visit people who are sick. And when someone in the congregation has had surgery or is, has a long-term illness, there's usually an email that goes out and people are invited to visit that person. And um, anyone in the congregation is welcome to go and there's no special training, although I think the rabbi is considering having someone come from the Jewish Healing Center and do some training from members of the congregation who want to do that kind of visiting. But it just seems like once you've had chaplaincy training that that would be such a gift to be able to offer. And I don't think that our sanghas are so well organized yet in thinking about the needs of members who are sick. Um, you know, even at Zen Center where quite a few people now have had chaplaincy training. I don't know, at City Center, is there a group of people who can be called on if somebody's sick? How does it happen? No, there's been discussion. I know there's, yeah, and there, there has been some discussion at Green Gulch, but it, it hasn't happened yet. So um, I think that could, could be coming in the future. You have your hand. You have your hand up. So please. Um, I grew up as the daughter of a United Church of Christ pastor, and realized when I did the chaplaincy training here last year that I had a very unexamined assumption, based on my life experience, that there that a Buddhist teacher would do what a Protestant pastor did, visit the sick, uh, the elderly, the shut-ins, do all that sort of thing, and I realized that I was having some judgment about Buddhist teachers that didn't do that because I thought, well, that's part of their job. And so I had a very clarifying conversation with Gil and with uh, my home Sangha teacher. And they said, well, you know, that's a lot of discussion that's going on right now about that. And many Buddhist teachers do not consider that as uh, just pro forma part of their responsibility some of them don't want that some of them don't feel that that's the best use of their time etc and which was was very helpful to me and i think that um our tendency has been perhaps to hang back and say well somebody should be doing this where maybe we're the ones that should be doing this and um sometimes yes training would be helpful but sometimes just going and making the visit may be better than waiting till we're trained because that person may not be there by the time we're trained. In our home sangha, we've had kind of a um, come and go. We call it the, the tofu brigade when somebody has been ill in our in our midst. That it, you know meals will get organized and. Uh, it's been more well organized at some times than others, uh, but you know we have had several members who have over the years passed on, and um, it's been an enormous blessing for the, those of us that have participated and helped. If it was taking them meals, cleaning their bathroom, whatever it is, so I think we just need to sometimes jump in there when we see the need and um, encourage others to join us. Uh, here at IMC, there's been an organization for some years called Sangha Neighbors, 
and uh, it too has risen and fallen in, in, in organization and effectiveness at different times. But ideally, in the way it started out, was that, um, and this of course is a much bigger sangha than probably a lot of other Vipassana sanghas, although it's probably analogous more to some Zen sanghas. Um, it started out that certain individuals uh, would um, say, I've got this much time, I've got these skills. And when somebody in the Sangha, and then it was publicized to call a coordinator, um, and when that person was called, then they would in turn tap the people in the appropriate geographical area with appropriate skills and time, and it would work that way. Um, The the less organized phases, it is simply a matter of where um, needs are are, um, spoken to the coordinator, and then that information is simply broadcast throughout the community and hopefully uh, followed up on. But it has risen and fallen like that. Now, Gil is taking some proactive moves right now. He's asked a couple of us to work with certain people in the, in the uh, Sangha with life-threatening illnesses or, in one case, a person uh, uh, had their husband commit suicide and was in a real very hard space three or four weeks ago. And so Gil has asked several of us who've had this kind of training, either through the Sati Center or <clears throat> through other kinds of training, to work with those particular individuals. Then this next Wednesday, he's called a meeting of what he's calling a pastoral consul, where a dozen people in the Sangha are being asked to come together and plan a much more organized um, structure for handling those situations that he can't possibly reach out and do all of. Uh, with uh, many, many hundreds of people that he's potentially dealing with in this sangha. So that's a way, at least a very, a larger sangha is sort of doing it under the leadership of the teacher. Sounds like we are on the developmental edge as, uh, as we all get a little older, for one thing, <laughs> and mature maybe in our uh, organizations. Uh, so that, maybe that's enough on that point. You, you wanted to sp- still speak to that one? I just wanted to say that I think sometimes there can be a tension between our relative um, maturity and seniority within the tradition that we're practicing within and the training that we receive outside. Like we may be... Um, well-trained and have a lot of experience in psychotherapy or, or whatever, but new to practice or new to practice in this particular situation. So um, there, there may be a feel. I've seen some people feeling like they're held back from offering what they've learned in the outside world because they're relatively new to practice within that sangha, but that that grows over time. And that when mostly what I've seen at Berkeley Zen Center and San Francisco Zen Center is that if you have those skills over time as you mature, you'll be asked to do that. And I've seen that for a lot of different people, that it kind of grows that way, that there's a need and then there's a skill and some maturity and that comes together. Okay, well, thank you all. Is there there another question? Yeah. Um, I've heard. I've heard. I've heard. I've heard um, American um, Buddhism being criticized as that there's a risk there that um, the lineage and the teachings are 
are going to be sort of subsumed over by psychology. Would you like to talk on that a little bit? I only heard it. It was not my opinion. (laughs) Well, um, I think it's true there's some risk. Um, And we're being very brave today in having this kind of a meeting, uh, in a sense, you know, that... uh, uh, and on the other hand, I feel that uh, it's our job, actually, to live our lives with the fullness of the tradition that we are adopting and inheriting and studying and the resources that we have in the culture that, uh, say, we've inherited by birth uh, most of us here, not all of us, but I think most of us here are converts to Buddhism. But there are some some people. How many people here were raised as Buddhists? One. One person in the room raised as a Buddhist. So maybe you can actually have some perspective on you know what we are, what we may be damaging or losing or risking. Um, uh, I know some of us uh, in the the various Zen traditions are very concerned about losing uh, some aspects of the tradition or the essential, maybe what's most essential. Um, And so some people feel that it's very important to maintain connection with uh, the uh, tradition as it's currently being expressed in Japan or in China or in Korea and uh, to maintain that as a kind of a kind of a check. Uh, recently, I was in uh, New York at Mount Tremper. We had a Soto Zen Buddhist Association meeting. That's our second conference, uh, which is really an evolution in the Soto Zen school of finding our own, say, legitimacy and our own uh, sense that we can authorize teachers within our tradition here in America. And we have a sense that we can do that, and we've done it. And at the same time, it was, I think, uh, it was enlightening and reassuring to have uh, uh, the bishop of Soto Zen in America, uh, Kengo Akiba, attending our meeting, listening to our discussion and commenting from his perspective on some of the discussion that we were having and and actually telling us, you know, what you're doing here is wonderful and actually you don't have to be so, uh, in a sense, uptight and conservative. (laughs) That was uh, so it's uh, but I think it's important to, to be checking, you know, checking back, checking with each other and checking back. So that's a very general kind of response. Um, would uh, would you like to say something about that? Yeah. I think it's a really important question. Um, just to add a little bit to what Steve said, there's. Um, I think we have to hold both, and we also have to trust the Dharma. That it's like when I'm walking down the street to my psychotherapy office, I know Tassahara is there. I know what's happening there. I know, you know, it's like 
I trust the heartbeat of the Dharma. And I want to do everything I can to protect it. But I also know that I need to adapt. And if I just if I keep coming back, it will happen naturally. So I think it's a matter of preserving and trusting and and transforming, not transforming. Um, It's kind of like there's the heart and then we express it in different ways. As long as we don't lose the heart, we'll be okay. And what that means, that may change in 100, 200, 300 years. But I think at that meeting that Steve was talking about, the, 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 the effort to maintain the lineage was really strong. And I guess it also makes sense that from what you were saying, there is a division in your mind when you're being a teacher and when you're being an analyst right? or when you're being a chaplain. So that may help to, to keep that at bay, as it were. And, and one other thing, we're lucky to have, uh, we're very lucky to have people who um, dedicate their lives to being monastics. I've uh, supported myself for a couple of decades as a a landscape designer and gardener. And as a Zen priest, people would ask me to do a Japanese garden. And I learned to respond that I don't do Japanese gardens. This is not Japan. Um, what they meant, though, was some garden that had some some flavor or maybe some feeling or maybe some uh, space for contemplation. And uh, so then I began to clarify and say, I can do a Zen garden. I can do a Zen garden, but I can't do a Japanese garden. And my understanding is that Zen and Buddhism are not limited to a particular culture. That actually the validity, the genuineness of our practice is right here in our practice. And it's in our own hearts and in our own sincerity. And this is something that has been confirmed many times by uh, teachers from the tradition uh, and it, over time we will keep rediscovering and, and the source actually within ourselves and seeing that that's also confirmed by uh, teachers in our lineage so I don't think uh, that we can think that we can just uh, uh, kind of go off on our own in a sense I think the tradition is so rich and so valuable uh, it's very important to respect that. But also, the tradition means nothing if we don't have the sense of source within ourselves. I was going to say, you can certainly look to history for an excellent example of this when Buddhism came to China. Upaya or skillful means is very important concepts in Buddhism. Oh, well, all these people are talking about the Tao. The Taoism was already there. The Christianism was already there. And you just use these concepts. So suddenly, uh, words in the sutras are being translated. Tao. This is the way, the way, the Tao, the path. You know? And, and uh, it's just a way of making it uh, accessible to people, working within the cultural 
framework. And that's, that's what I see happening now. You know, uh, if it's useful, a skillful means to adopt language of psychology and psychotherapy, concepts that people understand, to uh, teach and expound and keep fresh the Dharma, then we will do so. And I'm not in the least worried about the purity of the Dharma being subsumed. <laughs> so we have, that's good, a representative from the Not Worries School. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Yes. I'll follow that. I'll yes. As I guess so. perhaps the only uh, born Buddhist here. Um, a lot of what I grew up with, I got basically from parents and grandparents in the community. Uh, I've read and done other things, and I had to go outside my community because it didn't make sense to me. And I turned to psychology, and it's um, finally transpersonal. But uh, I think what I want to say is that, yeah, it's, um, these are very human, universal values, if you want to say, and uh, can be interpreted in an American sense. Uh, if you go back to Japan, go to Tokyo, <laughs> and see how much Buddhism is reflected in that materialistic city. <laughs> uh, I think the one thing I see, and I, this is a little complicated to say in one sentence, but uh, the shift I see personally is not a, a lack of translation, but it's a, a shift in paradigm from what we were talking about, absolute relative. That To me, Buddhism comes from an absolute non-dual uh, basis. And it seems like when we talk about anything, it's immediately translated into a religious dualistic way. And that's where a lot of confusion has come in. And just to point out that fact that uh, it's a different paradigm, an Eastern paradigm, I think over the centuries has incorporated a basic non-dual mindset. It's quickly changing into a dualistic market society. But I think from a spiritual point of view, this uh, can be important to help Americans coming from this Western point of view to get a sense of what these words mean, that they have a different experience um, when we talk in terms of an absolute. Probably muddied the waters a lot right now. Thank thank you for that. Yeah. Could you pass the microphone back to? Yeah, I wonder if you could say um, a few words about the way in which you perceive the style of Buddhist pastoral counseling being different from that of other um, uh, other religious uh, traditions. Or is there a difference? I'm just uh, reflecting now on what I said earlier, <laughs> that there is no Buddhist pastoral counseling. Um, but then, of course, there is. Um, because... If, that's your absolute. <laughs> that's... Uh, I, what, uh, what I think that, that I personally bring to pastoral counseling as a Buddhist is uh, the practice of sitting. The practice of uh, listening deeply inside myself and uh, then extending that to listening to others. And I think there's a quality 
that, uh, you know, I can't really see it. But it is a, a quality of, uh, that just comes uh, with the embodiment of practice. And uh, Gail can comment uh, from, from her perspective. Uh, it, she, she knows me pretty well, and she has a sense of, you know, where I come from, which is coming from nowhere, coming from not knowing, which is the ability to be to be present. Um, I found in in the work that I'm doing in internal family systems is that uh, the ability to to have what we call shamatha or stability of mind uh, in the face of uh, distressing situations. I think it's something that we all cultivate as Buddhist practitioners. And that is a tremendously valuable resource. And you can't really duplicate it by, some, by thinking about it. You can't really duplicate it by uh, intellectually understanding it. You really have to take the practice and embody it. So I don't know quite what that is. And uh, I can't, maybe I can't articulate it so well and how that actually plays out. But I think uh, over time we will see, I think there will be a big demand for Buddhist pastoral counselors, counselors that come from a tradition. I think we're seeing that part, uh, particularly in the hospice movement, which is, which is related. People who have uh, a meditation practice are, uh, say, mature in their ability to, to be present in the face of distressing circumstances, people dying. Um, so I think people find that resource in, in the practice. And uh, there are a lot of people in the hospice programs who really appreciate Buddhists uh, bringing their, their uh, ability to the hospice uh, movement. And I think people who are also in the hospice movement coming from other traditions then adopt some of the meditation practices that we, that we are familiar with in, in our Buddhist tradition. So I'm just kind of gra- uh, grappling with that myself at this point. Do you have a comment on that, Jaku or Gail? No? Well, I'll, I'll speak to the question you raised, which is um, okay. what I notice in Steve's work is um, the deep, what I would call from my tradition, the deep sacred nature of every encounter. And he acknowledges that. And that is why I think there's no real Buddhist, Christian, or Jewish pastoral counseling. It's that um, we take off our shoes in the presence of the Holy One who is before us and whatever we call their sacred nature or their holiness, we honor that first. And we can't do that until we learn how to honor our own. And so that's what we're bringing to the encounter. And Steve does that um, in a very um, elegant and um, articulate way. It's more than love. 
More than love. Love is not enough. <laughs> it was pass fail. <laughs> no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that that question came up actually in uh, looking at. We talked about that today in ongoing supervision, where her supervisor. One thing I should just say about uh, American Association of Pastoral Counselors that I think is tremendously important is the whole uh, notion of supervision, and that uh, so nobody's out there really uh, winging it on their own. That each person as a pastoral counselor has a relationship with their sangha their, or their congregation, and so that's acknowledged and important. And each person has a, has a supervisor. And uh, so Gail is supervising me, and she has a supervisor. So something came up in our, in our work uh, a couple of weeks ago, which she then took to her supervisor. And this morning on the driving down, uh, reported back. And one of the questions was whether I would be willing to hear that negative feedback, you know. Uh, her, her supervisor was asking about whether our relationship, because we, ha- we also have uh, a friendly relationship, right? Would our friendly relationship be uh, threatened? Uh, and would that limit her ability to actually effectively supervise me? So that's something that, you know, it's important to be clear about. Uh, can, can I handle the... Uh, the inquiry about uh, the work that I'm doing. Um, and uh, if I can't, then maybe if we want to maintain our friendly relationship, maybe I should have someone else as a supervisor. So that's something that's uh, reviewed and, uh, and assessed uh, pretty regularly. And uh, so I, I support uh, you all, uh, anyone who's interested, to you could go online and check uh, AAPC, American Association of Pastoral Counselors, you get some inf- uh, uh, access to the whole ethics statement for pastoral counselors, other information about uh, kind of the level of uh, integrity that's expected uh, from that uh, organization. And, of course, we have to actually do it, you know, live it out as, as individuals. But, but there's a real intent to be uh, uh, true and responsible to that. Yes. Yes. So in our big San Francisco Zen Center Sangha, there are some therapists who see members of the Sangha as clients, and I know that neither of you will. And I wondered if you could say something about that. Um, Well, this gets into the issue of dual relationships. Um, and just to say that we uh, live as humans in communities, and so we inevitably have multiple relationships with people. Um, the question is, how do we handle that? So uh, for me to function effectively as a therapist, in a lot of situations, it's much better if I don't run into that person in the bathroom at Zen Center. Right. That's really clear. Now, I'm serious. I mean, I I have had experiences where I took people on as clients, psychotherapy clients who lived at a distance and then ended up moving closer and closer into the community over time. Uh, 
And then they would see me in my robes at ceremonies, and it would be very confusing, and it would be difficult for them to handle because that particular person was really, um, had, as I say, intense transference with me. So it was it was very difficult, and I said, it, nothing bad happened, it all worked out fine, and it was exhausting. So for me to have my home sangha free of that kind of relationship is really important. I need to be able to go over there when my hair isn't completely washed. You, you know what I mean? I need to be able to, I need to be able to go and have doksan with Blanche and come out with tears on my face. I need to be able to have a place where I can be and have no no implications, therapeutic implications for that. So it's, I need a spiritual home. So that's that's the basis. And then as a teacher, that's a separate, separate thing. Because I don't really function as a teacher at the San Francisco Zen Center. But in another place I do, and that's a whole other set of difficulties that arise. Yeah. I'd like to say just a little bit about that from on the teacher side. And um, from the... Uh, role of uh, having some authority also in a residential community, there's what we would call, say, a gatekeeper function in which uh, uh, as someone having some authority in San Francisco Zen Center, it would, I would say, interfere and impinge upon someone's ability to feel that they could actually uh, talk to me about whatever comes up, to be open with me about their all their weaknesses and all their distressing things and whatever whatever may be of concern because they may be thinking, well, I'm gonna I'm I'm not gonna be able to get the position that I'd like to get or the or the housing arrangement that I'd like to get because this is uh, you know putting me in a bad light. It may it may just in influence the uh, uh, say that the uh, the field of trust so this is recognizing the power dynamics say uh, in the relationship that's kind of at the administrative level then there's also the say the the teacher uh, Dharma teacher relationship and there is a there is a difference, as uh, Jaku was talking about earlier in her presentation, the feeling that the teacher needs to be able to say be wild in a sense, not not just in a healing, comforting relationship, maybe be in a more challenging relationship. And uh, I think uh, if you look at uh, the whole range of interactions in Zen stories, sometimes. The Zen teacher will be very, say, harsh uh, and feel that this is an important part of the relationship to help that person develop and realize themselves, which would be inappropriate for a therapeutic, quote, therapeutic healing relationship. Um, So at... uh, I think any any particular sangha, there's, there's a lot of judgment that needs to that uh, I think is mutually uh, something that needs to be reviewed between the 
say, the student and the teacher or the client and the therapist? What are they really after? Is this a student-teacher relationship or is it turning into one? Uh, and and so I think that's something that needs to be addressed and be ready to change it. Say, okay, we're no longer friends. We're no longer uh, uh, doing a pastoral counseling relationship. Now you're going to have to go someplace else and do that um, so that I can be free to be a teacher with you. Um, does that make sense? Yeah? Let's pass the microphone over. A related question, since you're talking about carefully setting boundaries, how else do you take care of yourself as a caretaker? That's for any of the three of you. Any of the three of you could answer that. Yeah, this is we could all probably say something. This is a real challenge for me. Um, uh, over uh, partly because I have some uh, genuine health difficulties that require me to be more aware, and I fail miserably at that a lot because, um, as my partner tells me, I'm greedy. You know, I want to do a lot, and I I love doing what I'm doing. Um, I think it's such an important issue. Uh, in the summer, uh, with a friend of mine, we do a retreat at Tassajara for therapists. And one of the prime issues that comes up in, in Buddhism and psychotherapy is how, how do you take care? What does that mean? What does that really mean? I think it's, I think it's a, a kind of koan in a way. What does it really mean to take care? And how do you do it without all the shoulds? You know, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. How much, you know, to really get down to what it really means to take care and set effective boundaries. And that's, an, uh, for me personally, that's an ongoing question. And I often have to make choices that make me sad. In that regard, I'd like to just uh, reference the value of peers. Um, I think, uh, I, well, I've, I have a good friend, uh, Lou Richmond, who's also a Zen teacher, and he's, he says it very dramatically. He says, if you don't have peers, you're dead. Um, since, uh, since I've uh, begun uh, doing Dharma teaching, I've felt that it was really important for me because I recognized I can't see my own shadow to cultivate uh, relationships with people who can see my shadow and, are, uh, and, and that we actually have expressed a mutual agreement that we can call each other. And so when someone says uh, to me that yeah, you're doing too much or you're running yourself ragged or you, it sounds like you're not really being very clear about what you're doing here, maybe you should stop and take a look. Let's take a look at this. Uh, uh, I need to have people who can feel that they have that relationship with me and can tell me that. It's also helpful to me to, to uh, have a spouse, frankly. Uh, and I'm lucky to have someone who, uh, you know, can say, okay, take a break. <laughs> or uh, we need to take some time to do something together. It's not just uh, It's not just your work. It's not just... 
endlessly meeting the requests of all the endless people who have requests. Um, and uh, I'd say the third thing is actually maintaining, actually maintaining the practice of sitting. Uh, it's it can happen that teachers get too busy because uh, in our in our tradition. You go to the zendo and then you get called, you, you go to another room, you're doing doksan all the time. You're seeing people individually and you actually are not taking the time to do your own uh, individual practice. So actually checking yourself to maintain and uh, your own personal practice is, uh, is essential. So I'd say peers, having a close personal relationship, if you don't have a spouse, Cultivate someone as a as a friend who's just re- a person that you can actually just you know, keep checking with and 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 your own personal practice. So those are the things that come up for me. Thanks for asking. Yeah, Gail, do you want to say something on this? I do. Yeah. Learning to be fully integrated without my role has been really important for me. So my husband and I love to go dancing. And he loves to buy me beautiful dresses to dance in. And uh, for many years as a pious pastor, I didn't think I could get sexy and get down on the dance floor (laughs) with my husband. And I do, and it's so much fun. And and there, there are lots and lots of ways which I can keep my personal integrity and my integrated spiritual self and step and not have to be in a role all the time. And I think it's um, being in the role that um, that deadens the 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 true life. Oh, uh, in in 26 years of doing this, that's what I would say mostly. In addition to you know clergy groups and yoga and a meditation practice and a and a basic uh, understanding of my whole life is my practice including going dancing with my husband. Thank you. Another question here? So uh, I think I'm understanding the distinctions between, um, you know, being an analyst and being a teacher. But there's one story, Zen story, that's that's come. I remembered it, and I want to offer it. And maybe you can help me understand the the difference here of, of whether the I won't say who it is because I don't want to give the answer. Whether the person responding is a teacher or an analyst. And the, and the story is um, the one where, it's a horrible story, but the one where the woman comes to the person and she's hysterical and she's crying and she comes to the person and says, my child has just died. And this person takes something and whacks her on the head. And he says to her, now there's something to cry about. So my question is, I asked it, but for me it's confusing on did that person respond as a teacher? Did that person respond as an analyst? And was that person coming, you know, the woman, the mother, was she coming seeking an analyst or was she coming seeking a teacher. Do you want to take that one? 
<laughs> it's a koan within a koan. It's not, to me, the response was that of a parent, um, neither a teacher or a counselor or, as you say, analyst. Uh, by the way, to me, analyst refers to a particular branch of uh, psychotherapy and doesn't really cover the range that we're, that we're talking about here. Um, uh, neither of the, uh, that would not be my response from either of those perspectives. I agree with Steve. I can't imagine that response. I can only imagine that perhaps, perhaps the woman woke up. I'm willing to concede that perhaps that teacher was so in tune with exactly what that that woman needed at that point that there was a beneficial response. However, you'd have to be enormously in tune to risk that kind of thing. And I would I don't imagine that I would ever be that wise. So I and and clearly you were talking about being a lawyer, right? You know, any therapist that whacks somebody on the head would be in jail real quick. <laughs> so um, that's my response. Um, is it a story that you've heard as well? Have you heard that? No. <laughs> Somebody please help. I didn't get it. I heard that story. What, uh, what I'm feeling is that a lot of times I always approach uh, situations with a lot of kindness and compassion. And sometimes I think if that person, if it's not explained so well, but it can be that she's really hysterical. I mean, that you need to head on head. I was a social worker and I had a client and always approached compassionately. I was able to deal with her wonderfully. But she was histrionic, you know, and she gets like, she wants to show off and she does a lot of these things. But I was new and, and I would approach compassionately and this woman would change, would be just a, a lamb. But with my supervisor, you know, he probably had more experience and, and he was tough with her and she would respond histrionically. So sometimes probably she needs a, a head on the head. If she's that kind of hysterical, because if you, if you talk about hysterical, even if someone was crying with grief, but some women can be really hysterical that a knock on the head will wake them up. It's like pouring a glass of water or a bucket of water to wake them up. That's so I, I want to respond in one way to that, which is any action that's beneficial is compassionate. Compassion and niceness are not equivalent. So any any other follow-up on that one? Yeah. Could could you take the uh, microphone? There's one there. Yeah. It's a it's a Korean movie called uh, Spring, Summer, Fall, Winter, and 
in that the teacher does something kind of similar to his student who is kind of hysterical um, over something else. But um, in the movie, it seems quite appropriate and the wise, compassionate thing to do because it's the only way to reach this person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, as a Zen teacher, I would uh, reserve the right to do that. (laughs) Although, you know, I would... uh, be careful probably not to hit someone on the head but uh, but sometimes uh, you know uh, give someone some physical contact uh, and I think uh, that's part of the uh, or maybe grab grab them and hold and say <laughs> you know. but uh, so but as a pastoral counselor I, I wouldn't do that. So I think there is a difference in the in the role. I wouldn't feel the freedom to do something that dramatic uh, uh, in that seat. Uh, so if you come to me uh, for pastoral counseling, then you get a little different treatment than if you come to me for Zen training. And, and I think that's part of what is actually understood. It's a there's a, a sense of a contractual agreement actually and sometimes we make it more explicit and sometimes uh, it doesn't have to be so spelled out in words but we understand okay here's a relationship in which there's a lot of latitude because that's what the person's asking for they really want to be ready to go to the very bottom of their being you know and other people come to me and they want they want some help say getting through some difficulty in their life or something, but getting to the bottom of my being, no thank you. you know, maybe later. And uh, so I think that's, uh, if, you're, if, if I'm in doubt about the relationship, if we don't have a clear agreement or a sense of you know, what we're doing here together, then uh, my, my responsibility, I feel, is to try to clarify that and say, well, what are we doing here together? Do you actually see me as teacher? Are you willing to take me on as teacher? Um, am I willing to be teacher with you? So with people that uh, are in Zen practice, sometimes it's, it's maybe a, uh, I, in our smaller group, we talked a little bit about trust, you know, trusting that relationship to the point where you may be willing to say, okay, I'll I will submit to you as teacher. Uh, maybe submit is not the word they want to use. Right? Uh, but maybe I want to recognize you. and I want to invite you to actually uh, use all of your uh, understanding and wisdom and skill and creativity and whatever in helping me to be completely who I am. So that's that may be the request. And I would take that very seriously. And uh, and feel challenged, you know, to live up to that request. Um, but it's uh, important to discern what is the what is the request. Yeah. She needs a microphone back there. Steve, I'm not quite clear um, in your training with internal family systems. Are you 
um, weaving that into your work as a STEM teacher, or are you uh, working on a model like Safu where that's a separate thing? And um, I'm curious also because of having this simple kind of Gemco who has taken that model and completely woven it into his his Dharma teachings. The two are inseparable at this point. And um, so I just have a question about you know how how you're doing that. Lloyd Center for Pastoral Counseling. Okay, yeah, there's some distinctions I think here that are important. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Um, so the Lloyd Center for Pastoral Counseling. Uh, one thing is that that's the Center for Pastoral Counseling, um, and it's not not dedicated to internal family systems approach. There are uh, various different uh, therapeutic modalities that are that are taught, presented, and it's up. Different people that were in the group of trainees that I was in have adopted different modalities as our preferred approach. So that's that's the Lloyd Center. Um, my own work with internal family systems is, uh, uh, I would say, uh, separate and distinct. From uh, Dharma teaching, and at the same time, my Dharma teaching is informed by it, and my uh, uh, internal family systems work is informed by my practice. Uh, but different venues, uh, I would definitely keep separate. Um, so I see them more as complementary, not as something to blend together. I think that uh, as, uh, Dharma students, uh, in many cases, can benefit from also having a therapist or a pastoral counselor in addition to their teacher. And I see those as two distinct roles, just as I was saying before. And so in a way, in, so I am uh, not... I'm not using internal family systems approach per se with Zen students. But as I, say, as I said earlier in the day when I was talking about samskaras, that volitional bundles and my understanding of, uh, say, the, the internal system of people, I'm also, uh, I would say, informed by that understanding of what Buddhist psychology is talking about. In other words, I'm... I'm, uh, say, uh, Western psychology and internal family systems is helping me understand the real intent of uh, what's uh, being uh, described in uh, Buddhist psychology and traditional Buddhist psychology. So I see them actually as uh, working uh, with some overlap, but mostly distinct and complementary. Is that I don't know if I can be clear. I'm, I'm this summer. I'm, I'm doing a, a one day, uh, a five day retreat at Tassajara with Zen and internal family systems. And I'm having someone else uh, who's a trainer in internal family systems come in and do the internal family systems part of that presentation. Um, and it'll be interesting actually to see. And then I'll do the Zen part of the presentation. Um, 
so we'll have we'll have uh, uh, Cease, who's a, one of the one, a very good trainer in internal family systems, presenting that. So that can be clear, I think. Uh, I wouldn't do that uh, as a as a Zen teacher. I wouldn't try to present internal family systems in that kind of context. So that's that's uh, important to me actually to to keep the uh, distinction. And uh, that doesn't I'm not I don't mean that as a criticism of what Gempo is doing either. I, and I I haven't really studied what Gempo is doing, and I don't I think he's adopted say parts of internal family systems too, and he's got his own um, uh, way of uh, presenting that. I, I see that as an interesting experiment, um, and I've had some people. Uh, express that's confusing to them and other people really feel that there's some benefit to them so uh, that's but anyway for for my own decision is that uh, that's not what I want to do okay yeah okay what else we have a few more minutes But we don't need to talk, actually. Yeah. Would you say that the chaplain role happens um, more, or the presence of the chaplain comes to people more during a crisis in their lives, and a counseling is, is less crisis-oriented? Or is that a misconception? Who would like to respond to that? I, I will. Yeah. Um, I think if we think about where chaplaincy occurs in hospitals, prisons, hospice, uh, it, it pretty well is self-defining. I don't know if you would say crisis, but I'm, I think you can say deeply transformative life events or potentially deeply transformative life events, birth, death, illness, you know, incarceration. Um, I think uh, in, in a counseling or that kind of relationship, it may be crisis. Um, there's there's surely something going on that's it could be like the princess and the pea phenomena you know where there's just something that's not right and there's kind of like what brings us to practice or it could be a major a divorce or death of a child or it could be a huge event but I think what what shared there is a willingness to um, if somebody walks in usually you walk in the door as a chaplain and people can meet you or not, you know. It, for somebody to come in for counseling, they they have to make an effort to find you. So there's a kind of a difference there. But I think in any case, in the effective, if it, if it's a real relationship that's happening, there's a there's a willingness to take whatever is happening and turn it into a transformative event. There are a couple of hands up. Uh, Gail, did you want to add anything Um, to that? I just wanted to say that uh, I've worked as a university chaplain, 
And um, I'm also thinking about the historical nature of chaplaincy, which certainly did not focus around crisis events at all. It was more of a ministry of presence as people live out their everyday lives. And certainly we were called upon at crisis times, but uh, I'm thinking also in the military and in Uh VA hospitals, the chaplain is there as a presence all the time. And again, we'll be called on at a time of crisis, but but it's really um, a fellow traveler along the road rather than a fire person. Mm-hmm. Always. So. That uh, reminds me of uh, one thing that Norman Fisher was asked to do uh, was to join the board of a of a business as a and the role of a chaplain actually. To be a to be a kind of a, a spiritual presence uh, in the midst of all the other uh, business dealings, uh, because the people in, in that particular business just felt that that would actually be part of uh, of a way of keeping them on track with their their real intention. Uh, yes. Um, just from my personal experience at St. Francis, I'm uh, a chaplain for the emergency department, and I do respond to a lot of crisis situations. And so I just, you know, want to share that, that there is ministry of presence, um, but there are also a lot of occasions where I found myself, you know, just in front of a person who's just wailing because, you know, they've just lost um, their father or um, a young woman who's just you know, had a miscarriage, and it's, uh, I guess why I take a little bit of a little sensitive uh, reaction to that story that um, that was shared here. Um, And I just didn't, I just wanted to share that and didn't want to let that go, that uh, there is a crisis situation in hospitals, and as a chaplain, you know, fortunate or unfortunate, I've been able to experience that, and I just wanted to share that. So it's uh, ten minutes after four, and um, I have a sense of the, the kind of the energy in the in the room is is kind of nicely settled. <laughs> Another way of putting it is people are exhausted, <laughs> um, or uh, uh, I also have a sense that that many of the questions that people came with have at least been, there's at least been some response as to whether there's clarity, brilliant, luminous clarity about, uh, you know, the differences between pastoral counseling and chaplaincy and what's Buddhist pastoral counseling. Uh, I think we can acknowledge that we're in the middle of a developmental process, um, all of us, and uh, with the with the uh, development of, of you know our Western forms of practicing the Dharma, uh, but I'd like to just uh, uh, say take a moment within yourself to see if there's any uh, particular point or anything that's been uh, triggered or activated or anything that you're uh, say uncomfortable with that's happened here that you'd just like to call attention to. 
uh, I want to respect uh, where everyone is at at this moment. And I don't want to leave anyone feeling that uh, there's something that uh, was, uh, you know, particularly unfinished or unacknowledged. So uh, let's just take a moment and see if anything comes up. And then just, uh, just uh, you know, raise your hand and ask for the microphone. And uh, we'll take, yes. So I was just raising your hand, so pass her the microphone. Not exactly something unfinished, but I've been sitting here thinking, gee, I wish I could see this in action. And just thinking, if you were to do this day again, that it might be helpful to have a role play where one of you was, um, you know, someone came to you as a, uh, a, uh, you know, for practice discussion as a teacher and how you would handle that. And if they were coming with the same issue as in your role as therapist, how would you handle that? I think it might be easier to grasp somehow. Just, uh, I thought it's a little abstract. Good, good suggestion. So, yeah, so we're moving into evaluation time. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. This is just um, uh, a question that I uh, came with, I guess, at the beginning. And I'm still not clear about it, actually, which is, it seems like both pastoral counseling and chaplaincy, and I have a big interest in chaplaincy, does involve that kind of stepping back from your own tradition and allowing the other, whatever the spiritual needs are of the other person to come forward. And yet I don't know how, as a person who has never been theistic, how I can genuinely be present. I mean, even I, I mean, I want to be able to be, but how do I? How would I pray with somebody when that has? I mean, I think most people come from some kind of background where they they feel a connection with that. But I'm just curious for for you how you um, how you do that with integrity. Uh, This was a a real question for me when I started my um, chaplaincy training. And um, I was speaking with someone earlier about the fact that I didn't do baptisms and I didn't do any ritual uh, Christian activities, even though it caused a kind of disruption, although I had my buddy rabbi with me. Neither one of us would do it. um, Because I didn't feel comfortable taking on the rituals of a tradition that I did not believe in. I personally come from a very kind of vaguely Christian background that I never quite got. <laughs> I never started appreciating Christianity till I was a Buddhist. Um, but I think that the way I did it was with this attitude of Shantideva. I am acting as canon. I am acting as the bodhisattva of compassion when I walk into that room. And I will... I will not abandon, I will not say, yes, you know, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I wouldn't say that. But what I found was when I went in with the intention of compassion, I could easily stand beside someone and support them to pray. You know, and I could be fully present with them. I could bow my head and pray with them in the sense that I was with them and they and I was honoring the words that came from their heart. So I didn't really... I didn't really have a problem with that. There were some people who I went in and met 
who had very fundamentalist Christian beliefs, and I referred them to someone. I asked one of my um, brother or sister chaplains to take them over because clearly I was not going to be able to communicate effectively with them, but it was very rare. And so really with the heart of compassion, we can, we can really find integrity and responsiveness at the same time, I think. Uh, in my year in the Sati program, one person was unable to do baptisms. And now there is an absolutely marvelous article that she wrote and placed on the Buddhist Chaplains Network. I don't know how many of you are aware of www.buddhistchaplainsnetwork.org. But it came out of our year at the Sati program of wanting more connection and more support with the certification process. So her article about how in a year of doing chaplaincy, she moved from a place that you just described to a new understanding of baptism, it might be something useful for you. I I really value that position and I honor that shift. But perhaps because I'm a priest, I I also honor, and because my, my dear friend was a rabbi, I think you find your own position. And for me, there was always a Catholic priest that was a backup. I always had somebody that was a backup. I was never going to leave somebody hanging without a baptism. So um, so I think, again, it's this process of whatever your own particular journey is, where you find it. I personally have a certain kind of faith that doesn't work for me. By the way, I just, I just want to say thank you, because I, I think this was something that was actually kind of stopping me from finding a way to kind of go forward. So I really appreciate that. Um, just over the past three months um, since I started the CPE program, I'd been struggling because I was born and raised as a Catholic. And uh, for the past eight years, I've been um, in the Soto Zen tradition. And um, I'm just kind of responding to your question about, you know, um, struggling with if someone asked me to say prayer or something. And when I'm the on-call chaplain and I'm the only chaplain in the hospital, just like um, a couple of nights ago, um, I was asked to go into the burn unit um, for a patient that was going to code blue, which is maybe all of you know, is um, either to resuscitate or not resuscitate when, you know, someone is near dying. And so I get in there, and uh, the family's there, and the two sisters just part, you know, and they ask me to go in the middle of them, and they ask me to say prayer. And I say, oh, geez, what am I going to say? And then they go, I go, do you have a particular prayer that you want to say? And trying to get myself out of this situation. (laughs) And, um, you know, all this time I'm just thinking about, you know, and I mean, I could, I could chant something, you know, I could chant the Heart Sutra, no problem. And then they go, no, please say one, chaplain. And I go, oh, geez. So, you know, I reach into my pocket and uh, I'm always carrying Psalm 23, you know, or Prayer of St. Francis because of the hospital. So I pull that out and I'm just saying this and I just realize, wow, I mean, I can really say this, but... Yin is always in the back of my mind. And so 
you know, I just wanted to share with you that when you have to do something, you just do it, you know. And I remember, you know, I remember what, you know, Suzuki Roshi said about Zazen. You know, it helps. Zazen is, um, it's a way of helping you to respond to a situation when you really need to and in the best way possible. So when I'm struggling about what my sitting is all about, I remember that and I'm able to really practice what Ministry of Presence is about. So I just wanted to tag that on to you. Thank you. I'm I'm so glad to hear you say that. And um, what occurs to me, having been in that kind of situation also, is that if we're really not dualistic, what difference does it make? You know, I mean, baptism is an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible reality. And it's the inward and invisible reality of the fact that all we are is presence. And my presence is no different than your presence. And so, what if the words, you know, aren't exactly from our tradition? Okay. Say a little bit about about the prayer room at Lloyd Center, how much time it is, and the requirements. Not now, not now. That's something that's easy, actually easy for you to find out. Go on, go online. And I did, uh, you know, at the table is uh, the curriculum. If you want to look at that, one of the one of the handouts on the table over there. Uh, you're really pushing on this, right? <laughs> one one day a week, one day a week for two years. Yeah. Um, so it, it there's a, a sense here that we're in a kind of a, a sacred space. We've actually uh, hurt each other, and I, and uh, I respect the wisdom in the room that there. Are uh, you know being manifest in each each person here uh, in your questions? And you know, as we say in Zen, actually, your questions are better than answers. Not knowing is the way. So uh, I'm wondering if we could close. Are there people here who don't know the refuges in Pali? Um, or who don't want to raise their hand. <laughs> so the refuges in Pali, that, uh, I, I was uh, in our in the San Francisco Zen Center and in other places. Uh, we chant the refuges in Pali because it's the most, say, broad-based, common uh, language across different Buddhist uh, traditions. And so we say, Buddham, Buddham, Saranam, Gachami. And then Dhammam, Saranam, Gachami. And Sangam, Saranam, Gachami. 
and then uh, repeating it a second time, it's duti ampi, duti ampi, and the third time, tati ampi. And you can join in, and if uh, you can hum along, if you don't quite get the words. Okay. And hands in, uh, hands together, palms together. Yeah. Buddham Saranam Gachami Dhamam Saranam Gachami Sangam Saranam Gachami Duryampi Buram Saranam Gachami Duryampi Dhamam Saranam Gachami Duryampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Tatiyampim Buddham Saranam Gachami Tatiyampim Dhamam Saranam Gachami Tatiyampi Sangam Saranam Gachami Please go in peace. <laughs>